healthcare and health insurance get interchanged a lot. And there's never been, no one has ever received healthcare from Cigna, Aetna, Blue Cross. They've never received healthcare. Health insurance, healthcare is from Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones or Dr. Tremblay or Dr. Gold, folks that you know, we know, that, that, that's healthcare. This is Christy Gupton, and I'm an employee benefits advisor. I understand how hard it is to embrace change when you have employees depending on you for a great health plan. This podcast is uniquely designed to answer your most pressing questions. Let's get right to it. Okay, welcome Ryan Rourke, a a brand new addition to AMR Benefits Management, uh, a consulting firm started by my good friend, um, Andy Roberts, who lots of people follow on LinkedIn, and I would definitely call him a friend, um, in, not only in the industry, but I would I would think I would consider him a friend anyway. <laughs> He's just a great guy all around, and I'm so glad you're joining his firm up there in Boston. So welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So, you know, when there's change like this in a person's career, I always think it's very interesting. And I, I, I know that change is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that you're going from, um, you know, a past career, which by the way, reading through your LinkedIn profile, you have a lot of interesting experience with, let's just say it, pretty big giants in our industry. Um, uh, and on the benefits consulting side. And sure. so now that you're with, you know, a very small uh, boutique uh, agency like AMR, I'm just curious about your uh, your story, you know, your your past career experiences and and um, and 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 what motivated you to go in this direction. So let's just start uh, very basic like your basic introduction, education, training, how you got into this industry, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Um, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, once once I realized I wasn't going to be the shortstop for the Red Sox, uh, I had to figure out alternative careers. It's it's something where most people don't grow up their, their lives, you know, oh, I can't wait to be an insurance broker. You know, some people do. Sorry to those folks that, that have grown up. If maybe if you've grown up in that world, but that was not necessarily my dream as a as a young child running around the, the streets of Lowell. So when I got into it, it was one of those things where it was just, hey, there's a job. I had some friends that were working at Tufts Health Plan and they really liked it. I said, all right, yeah, sure, let's do it. Um and 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 it's weird because it was for a customer service job. And in 1999, I had to interview with a panel of people. And there was about 50 or so people to get this job and only a handful got it. So it was a competitive job for customer service. And we had a lot of fun with it. I spent 365 days to the day because you had to be in for at least one year before you bid out to another position within Tufts. Um, And I was there for for exactly one year and then moved into the sales department. When I was at Tufts, I worked with a lot of big, big companies. And it was cool to be like a fly on the wall for some of these renewals with in the state of Massachusetts, the city of Boston, Verizon, some of these big, big companies, Walmart and whatnot. Um, so you get to learn a lot about, you know, what makes this healthcare industry tick and what what it doesn't do. Working for a carrier, and as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the bigger brokers, you sort of see how it works and 
you know, as a career, it's great because, you know, you can grow, you can make money and whatnot, but there's a lot of inefficiencies and a lot of things that aren't really working towards a solution for the actual problem. It's just sort of perpetuating the system that's already in place. And that, you know, in and of itself, you know, again, you can, you can make a nice career out of it. You can bring a lot of clients in and you have this infrastructure for these really good, and they're well-run, they're competent companies, they're great companies, they're, they're not bad things. But there's just a, there was something a little bit missing, you know. For the most part, you know, I'm I want to help out the folks on Main Street as opposed to Wall Street, and that's sort of where meeting someone like Andy, who's like-minded, has really come in, and and it's 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 definitely a different change. Like you said, you're you're dealing with a completely different mindset when it comes to healthcare and and benefits, and just you know working with companies, but. Um, you know, it's only been a month or so in and it's, it's been so rewarding already. So I'm really, really happy about that. That is so good to hear. You know, I think you're right. A lot of people, when they start thinking about the reward that lies await in the benefits industry, because there's certainly plenty of reward in this career path. Um, it comes after a whole lot of work though. When they think about the reward, they do. It's just human nature that our minds take us to that jumbo employer and what it would be like to work with, you know, um, a, a company with 10,000 employees and and what a payday that would be. Right. But it's <laughs> that is not the norm. And you could spend a whole career yearning for that and never achieve it and really miss out on meeting your your whole career's objective which which should be to solve healthcare problems for employers really of all sizes and I think you're right when you go downstream to the smaller market right in your backyard. You know, I I definitely um, heard some advice early in my career that you should bloom in your own community. I I think that that is also a very rewarding, a career path and not only rewarding in esoteric sense, but, you know, rewarding financially as well um, and creating community around you. So, I mean, first of all, if you're going to do that, though, you have to be good at your job because if you suck (laughs) and you're going to just work in your community, (laughs) then you're not going to be able to um, fool all the community all the time. So you got to be good if you're going to do this on a smaller scale where people know you. It takes a lot of integrity to say, yeah, I'm just going to work with the small to mid-size employers right around me where they're neighbors helping neighbors. Tell me a little bit about your philosophy about healthcare and how that has maybe evolved over the course of your career so far. When I first started off in this industry, I was you know, 21, just out of school. Didn't really, it was just a job. I didn't really quite think about healthcare in the terms of what it really does and helps folks. You get to learn a little bit like, all right, well, there's this sort of this middle player in between, you know, the person giving the care and the person receiving the care. And we get it needs to be funded and paid for. And the mechanics behind it make make sense per se. But it, it's something I, th- I think Andy actually said this most recently that healthcare and health insurance get interchanged a lot. And there's never been, no one has ever received healthcare from 
Cigna, Aetna, Blue Cross. They've never received healthcare. Health insurance, healthcare is from Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones or Dr. Tremblay or Dr. Gold, folks that you know we know that that's healthcare, and it doesn't necessarily you know need all this extra layers into it. It's it's almost like it's insulated into this you know cocoon where folks are trying to access it and just pick and choose that. It doesn't quite work. So as I've gotten older and you know, seeing people go th- navigate the healthcare system. You know, I had my mom went through a pretty big car accident and had to deal with a lot of that. Prior to that, she had breast cancer, which she's recovered from and did well. But just seeing people navigate that, my own experience, you know, having two children and one now on the way, just seeing the inefficiencies on in how people, you know, can't speak with their doctor. Maybe they're getting the wrong information and I, I've just learned to question things a lot more. Folks don't necessarily do that, whether it's, you know, their doctor or their, their doctor's office, they sent them, Hey, well, here's this bill or here's this order. What if it's wrong? You know, can you check that? You know, that's something where pe- people tend to not push back against that, especially when they're talking with providers, you know, your, your doctor, he or she went to medical school. They went for eight years and two years of residency and they've been in school forever. So they're very smart. But doesn't mean they're always right. Doesn't mean you can't have that conversation. Doesn't mean and that in our system, yeah. yeah, in our system, it doesn't mean that the really great doctors know what they need to know about the cost. Because right. I think in the healthcare industrial complex, it's intentional. The especially the bigs, they don't want the good doctors to know the financial impact of the recommendations they make. Because let's say um, a great doctor has developed a great protocol for something and they do it really, really well. And so they focus on that and they should, but the, the profit making entity behind the scenes, maybe it's a hospital or um, you know, an insurance company or something like that, maybe they've decided to win the lottery on what this doctor has done, take advantage of the, of the good doctors at work and put an incredibly uh, obscene price tag on it that no one can see, not even the good doctor who created it, right? Even in the best of scenarios, when you've picked the best doctor and that doctor has done the best work, if you're still siloed and the cost of that work is still unknown to everyone who's consuming and performing and paying for that care, you've still dropped the ball. (laughs) You know, you hit on a good point in that it's almost like the I'm calling it like like the primary care revolution where, you know, my primary care physician, great, awesome. I've had him for a long time. I go basically once a year. um, So far, so good. But we talked about a little bit about how the primary care physician over years has sort of been the the low man on the totem pole, the low person on the totem pole, where if I'm going getting out of medical school, especially if I have all this debt now, I need to make some money so that thoracic cardiac surgeon at Mass General is going to make million dollars a year while well, paying off my debt a lot quicker there doesn't mean that they're doing bad work. Obviously they're doing some great things, but the community-based primary care physician, what's, where's that incentive? 
You know, like if I, if I am this super skilled straight A student out of medical school and I get to pick different things, am I really going to pick community primary care physician? <clears throat> Probably not. Like that's sort of where this sort of system breaks down a bit, where the, the meat and potatoes of health care, not health insurance, of, you know, consumer to the provider gets muddied by all these other things. And I've got to go for this. I've got to go for the, these, this, this building over here is so much better, you know. Is it? I don't know. So I yeah. think that seeing the primary care, you know, revolution, so to speak, come full circle. And I'm starting to see more, obviously, you know, what we're doing, you know, boots on the ground with AMR is really something that I think is going to last and going to sort of correct what has been going on for so long. Yeah, agreed. I think that it was by design. Um, that the status quo players in the healthcare industrial complex, uh, they must have known, I don't know, years ago, decades ago, maybe they must have seen that the way to for them to extract more money of the healthcare encounter was to get patients to skip over primary care somehow. Right. And, and so we've um, almost made it uh, almost like an afterthought. I think a lot of some patients come in the door, especially in fee-for-service-based practice. And, and for those out there who don't know that term, that's the typical traditional um, insurance-based reimbursement method. And that's what we call fee-for-service. So in a fee-for-service practice, sometimes I think patients come in the door saying, I'm just here because I need a referral to X, whatever they think X is, dermatology, cardiology, orthopedics, whatever. And so the bigs in healthcare <laughs> have almost like dismissed and devaluated primary care intentionally because they knew if they didn't, they would make a lot less money because of it. It's weird that referral, and, and especially when, when I was at Tufts, you know, dealing with referrals and bypassing them, it's it's only a negative term in healthcare to the consumer. I think it's fine, but you know, in any other world, in the business world, if I got a referral to a prospect, that's better than just calling them up out of the blue. You know, if I need to get my house painted, I put it out on social media or ask my friends. You're getting a referral to someone that may or may not know, as opposed to just pulling out the yellow pages when well, I'm dating myself by saying that, pulling up, I can pull up Google and just start typing it in. So why is a referral all of a sudden this huge roadblock in healthcare? Oh, do I have to get referrals? I don't, I don't want that plan. Why not? You know? Right. <laughs> you I mean, what your, <laughs> a referral is another word for a recommendation, right? <laughs> and I think that's part of the big problem that we're seeing in health plans right now, where if they get a referral, from a um, a hospital owned or private equity owned primary care practice, um, they view that as a almost like an ultimatum, like a, a recommendation that can't be questioned. And right. so, if they're getting um, a hospital based practice, who, by the way, is required to refer them to a hospital based specialist, then they're like on this unstoppable train sometimes, or at least I think employees feel this way. I put a lot of effort into trying to intervene and like get that train off of those tracks 
and and re, you know redirect it somewhere else, but uh, it's not always possible, right? And so that's why direct primary care is so important. I'm sure we're going to bring that word up again in in a little while, but I want to go back to you and and just say now that you've had all this life experience and and you've had sort of like this um evolution in your philosophy on healthcare. What are your new goals with your, um, you know, new position at AMR? What are you looking to achieve while you're there? I think that our goal is to really, you know, grow strictly organically and it's, it's refreshing. It's, it's almost, it's almost akin to, you know, healthcare, you know, like what Dave Chase says is not that healthcare needs to be fixed. Healthcare needs to be undone. So it goes back to, it was already fixed. We had a model that worked. We've just mucked it up for about 50 years. So right. just, you know, the the typical old school insurance, you know, agent slash broker consultant, that model does work. You know, people that you know, like, and trust, and you're not just churning and burning them through, you know, a renewal process. You're going out and meeting the people, seeing what you can do with them. I, I tell people all the time, I'm one of those weird people who loves open enrollment meetings. Because I get to, instead of just dealing with the leadership team or the decision-making team, HR or whatnot, get to meet the employees, get to meet the yeah. person who's the line worker, the receptionist, the people that are you know doing the job. So you get to know, all right, well, I can recommend something for you as a company, but if I don't know you all that well, um, that's, that's something I can learn. You can learn like, oh, if you're just meeting with the finance folks, maybe they care about just the numbers and give me the best number. If you're meeting with the employee engagement folks, whether it's HR or CEO or whatever, you're meeting with them and they want they really care about their employees. But if you don't see that dynamic in person, um, it's, it's hard to, to see that. And for the last few years, obviously COVID played a role in, you know, keeping people on zoom meetings and whatnot. Um, but I've gone out to meet clients and meet prospects more in the last month than I had in the last couple of years. And yeah, it's it's pretty cool. I, I I miss it. You know, my dry cleaning bill's gone up, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe some of the new Zoom attire will trickle over into open enrollment meetings, and we can still wear golf pants and uh, uh, a comfortable shirt. But anyway, I think you're right. What do you see in your travels and in your meetings with? employers in your marketplace? What are the things that you're seeing that they're struggling with and how do you plan to solve that? Um, they're definitely, you know, cost is always is, is of concern, but more than that is just the, you know, we're, we're sort of at the end of our rope type of thing I've heard. And we've done this for years and, and we keep increasing our deductible. Um, it's it's something where all right well if you're going for a three thousand or four thousand well how come it's not changing as much if you're not you're you just think about think about your entire population how many people have claimed between three thousand and four thousand exactly you're gonna have a handful of people that never use it and that's fine healthy premium you're gonna have a handful of people that you know use it a lot so you tell them it's three or four thousand they don't care because they're they're costing hundreds of thousands so mm-hmm. you know you're you're trying to do these small little changes to to quote unquote save money in the bottom line, but you're not, you know, trying to affect behavior in any in any way. Um, so I think that when you have this conversation with um leadership, you know, HR, CFOs and whatnot, having that conversation about what are your employees looking for, what you know, you don't want to change because you like the color of your ID card, 
if that's if that's how you want to run your business, you know, you wouldn't do that anywhere else in your business, right? So let's look at, you know, things that might be a little bit different. And yeah, when you're especially when you're dealing with, you know, clients that are a little bit bigger and maybe they for them to go from uh the Aeons, the Willis's, the Marshes of the world, you know, to come to a smaller company, that's a risk on them. You know, if they switch from Marsh to Aon, well, that's a different, just similar companies, different flavor. If you don't like them, no one's getting fired over that. If they think, well, I'm going to switch to this smaller, less known brokerage, I'm taking a risk. So if it doesn't work out, there's, there's something on me. It's like, all right, well, I get that. I understand that. And that's, that's a barrier to me picking up the phone and calling a 500 life group and saying, Hey, my benefits, let's do this. You know, they're like, who are you? Um, but at the same time, there's no difference in, in, in that you're looking for someone that can help you navigate the healthcare system at a cost-effective way and to engage your employees. And that's what we do 100% of the time. You know, we don't have to worry about a lot of internal pressures and compliance things and reporting to Wall Street. It's it's really, really refreshing that. 100% of what we do um, is client focused. You know, Andy and I have some infrastructure things where we have, you know, HubSpot and Google Docs, and but it's not fill this form out and triplicate and, and spend uh, most of your time on this admin stuff. It's really just clients. So, and it sounds simple, but that's not how a lot of employer brokerages, you know, especially upstream really focus. So um, that has been a, a, a nice change for me in the last month, for sure. You know, I was on a prospect meeting myself and uh, a couple of weeks ago, and throughout our conversation, it was definitely starting to reveal itself that their broker was really not telling them how innovative they could be. And, and so I just flat out said it. I, I just said, look, I think a lot of what you're asking me is making me believe that you don't know how much autonomy you have in designing your health plan. I said, this you have a self-funded health plan. The, the handcuffs are off. You don't have to ask mother may I to any insurance company. You can design this thing yourself. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to design it yourself. That's what I'm here to help you with. You're you're not being told what you can and cannot do down to the granular details. Of course, there's modest boundaries, legalities, you know, regulations that you have to comply with. But if you don't want your employees to have to pay a copay to see a primary care uh, doctor or even a specialist of certain types, whatever, it's up to you. You can decide how you want that plan design to operate. And it was clear to me that their eyes were open just in that dialogue. They kind of looked at each other and they were like, huh, you mean we can do that? (laughs) So I I was just, um, I was glad to, to be able to witness that sort of revelation, you know, this is a self-funded plan. You do not have to ask how this works. You can design it so that it works exactly the way you want it to. <laughs> and, and that's why, you know, that's why people like uh, we exist is to help be creative and innovate 
Um, and I love what you said earlier about wanting to work with, you know, the smaller employers in my state, in the in North Carolina. Um, it's a little looser than this in South Carolina, um, but in where the majority of my clients are, we can self-fund down to um, 26 eligible, 20 enrolled. And so there are a lot of players in our industry who absolutely will not pay attention to that market at all. They don't want any part of it. If you're not 100 employees or more, just like you said, no one cares about you. And I just feel like that is such an oversight on the part of the people who say (laughs) that they want to solve these problems. Because let's say that an employer with 30 employees and 21 people enrolled on the plan, um, they might be the next, you know, the next big employer. Who knows what the future is? But if you wait until they're big to start calling on them, well, you know, I realize accounts change hands all the time, but there's something to be said about forging relationships and growing with your client um, and going ahead and establishing that relationship with them when they're small so Mm -hmm. that you continue to be partners all the way through their growth. And yes, there's nothing to say that if they started it, you know, 30 employees and they ended up someday with 3000, there's nothing to say that you might not always be their consultant, but there's also nothing to say that you might always be their consultant, right? Because you forged that relationship with them when they were small and when they really needed you. So yeah, that's one of those things as, as being on the other side, when I was dealing with, you know, prospect that was with, that was with an AMR type of broker. My thought was like, oh, well, you've probably outgrown them by now. Um, but do you outgrow your friends? No, not usually. You know, your trusted advisors. Some people have the same dentists, doctors for their whole lifetimes if they can. They don't outgrow them. They change and people change with them. Um, so I've, I've that's something I've noticed, you know, on the flip side that, you know, AMR is every bit as sophisticated, if not more, because we have to be. You know, we don't, when you work for these bigger brokers, especially ones that are um, publicly traded, you actually shouldn't do these things that are less profitable and more work because you have fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders. So you're like, you actually can't do these things. We don't have that. Our fiduciary liability is to our clients to make sure that they are taken care of. And yeah, we're brokers. We get compensated most of the time on a fee basis. Well, that's another thing where you, when you have these plans, you can put in a fee as opposed to, you know, commission-based. You know, I tell people all the time, if you're getting a 20% increase, that means I'm getting a 20% increase. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, there's scales and whatnot, but I'm getting an increase too. So if I'm the one negotiating your increase and I'm, and I'm benefiting from that increase, there's an inherent conflict right there. If that's I'm getting paid a fee based on your employee growth up and down, well, that is based on you. You know, if you're the same group you were last year, you pay me the same amount. If you add 100 employees, more work, I'm going to get paid a little bit more. But it's all out there in black and white for folks to read. And yes, you can do that at the larger scale level, but on the smaller scale level, you never could. But, you know, full transparency, especially with AMR, it's it's not a, a theory. It's what we do practice every day. Absolutely. And let's face it, 
uh, broker compensation is not as what meets the eye. There is a lot of compensation under the surface to, to, you know, a lot of the brokers that operate in the traditional status quo system. Yes, I realize that um, um, consultants like me and you and Andy and the others in the Health Rosetta, we've been practicing compensation disclosure for years. (laughs) So when the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 was passed and told the entire industry that you have to now disclose your compensation to your clients and you have to do it by December 27th of last year. So to all you employers out there, if you haven't received your your broker's compensation disclosure statement by December 27th of 2022, you're late and it's your responsibility to have that or you could be fined. But those of us in the Health Rosetta and probably some others, um, I've been doing broker uh, my compensation since 2017. So it was no big deal to me. I didn't have to change anything. (laughs) I just kept doing what I was doing. Well, I think that it would really surprise most of the employers uh, in this country to know that it's not just factored into the premiums that you see increasing um, year over year. It's also uh, um, overrides and bonuses and trips and contests and all these things. Now, I, like I said earlier on, I love conspiracy theories, right? But And I have no smoking gun proof that this is the case. But I really do think that now that carriers and PBMs are vertically integrated with each other, I think a lot of that excess compensation that we don't see on the surface, bonuses especially, production bonuses, retention bonuses, this bonus and that bonus, there's one for everything. There's a bonus for practically everything in the status quo world. Personally, and and I will just keep, I suppose, promoting this conspiracy theory until someone tells me I'm wrong. I think the spread pricing on generics, now that the the BUCAs own or are integrated with uh, PBMs, I think that that's where a lot of that broker bonus structure and trips to Hawaii and, 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 you know, Mediterranean cruises and all the like, I think that's what is funding a lot of that um, compensation that nobody sees. Yeah. Tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) I couldn't tell you wrong. That's this. There's there's definitely something there where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. (laughs) Well, um, So I think that this is a good place um, to just kind of uh, let you say, uh, you know, some closing comments. I know that a lot of a lot of us in on our side of the industry where I almost feel like an activist sometimes. And that's not a compliment to me um, because sometimes I can get so worked up and almost angry about what I see in the industry that needs fixing. And I I can almost form um, an opinion of people just that's not kind just because I see problems. And when I don't see people solving them, it almost upsets me, right? And so I think that it's important to 
always kind of get back to what's real, what I know I can, the change I know I can affect and why, why I'm doing it. Ultimately, I think I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I've always liked the saying, if you have the ability uh, to, if you see something wrong and you have the ability to correct it, then you have the duty to correct it, right? Um, but but ultimately, I still have um, responsibilities to my family to be a good mom and a good wife. And I have responsibilities to my community to have a safe and healthy in, environment in, in my community. So I'll let you have the last few sentences and just give us our your closing statement on why your why, because we all have one. I, li- I like the I like the activist, um, you know, adage because. I've never really thought of it like that, but that's really what we're doing. You know, I, I, I do the same. I'm very heavily involved in the community. Um, you know, I've, I've know a lot of the folks. I know the, a, lot, a lot of local politics and I know that, you know, just grassroots is still alive and well in a lot of different areas. Um, but with my career, you know, I've mostly worked with these bigger brokers and neither good nor bad, but the, the adage is, you know, you can't put out a fire if you're inside the house. You know, if you're if you see something that's wrong with this this industry and, and the healthcare delivery model, and you want to do something to actually fix it, it's tough to do it if you work at the Bucas or some of these bigger companies. It doesn't it doesn't mean that they're these people aren't great. Like I'm a lot I'm a lot of friends in this industry. They do a great job, but there's something that, for me personally that doesn't quite sit right. Um, you know, healthcare reform was something that was supposed to make healthcare more affordable. And but you can see the the balance sheets of all the big brokers and all the big carriers and PBMs from 2010 onward, they're only up and up and up. So did what if everyone's gaining, you know, momentum when it comes to revenue, like where was the affordability? You know, the mom and pop shop, the local, even the local two or three hundred life employee, they didn't see that. You know, they've seen doubling over the last 10 years of their premium. So where was that affordability? Where is that? And just kind of making small changes here and there isn't going to do it. Um, So my why really is to match my career with my personal life and that I want to do things to improve my community and spruce up my small little patch of grass on this earth and and do the best for my my children and, and, and again, for my community as a whole. But I want to do that with my career as well. And, and putting that out there to show those same folks, that same community, my my children, that you, if you want to do something in your life, you have to sometimes get a little uncomfortable, do something that's a little different than what you're used to. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to you know, quit everything and become a hermit in the woods and, you know, you know, go all David, Henry David Thoreau on us, but just to to get out there and really do something that's that's meaningful and that's impactful. Um, and I've, yeah, I've 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 seen that in just a short time here at AMR. So I'm really really excited about you know waking up on Monday mornings. There's no more Sunday scaries going on. I'm excited to do that. So um, you know, I've got a I've got a baby on the way in a couple of weeks. So. It, it, there's an even better example of like, I'm navigating the healthcare system myself. So, um, you know, I want to make sure that there's an improved process for that. And I think that, I think that the, the solutions are out there. 
meeting a lot of the folks, you know, Andy specifically, but obviously people like yourself in this, this whole health Rosetta revolution. Um, I'm really excited to see what tomorrow holds for sure. That is super. So uh, if you're in the greater Boston area and Ryan Rourke from AMR Benefits Management uh, calls on you, uh, my advice to you is take the meeting. <laughs> and, well, that's some fun. <laughs> yeah. And best wishes uh, with your um, baby on the way. Make sure you get the itemized bill uh, after the uh, baby's born. And as Marshall Allen uh, would tell you, never pay the first bill. Best of, uh, you know, best wishes to you and uh, let's stay in touch. Thank you, Ryan Wark. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our important discussion. For more information about the work we do at Custom Benefits Solutions, visit our website at custombenefits.work.